I think that there's a, a phrase and it says something about whoever owns the story owns the reality. And right now we're dealing with a multitude of different stories that are out in our world, right? That really shape our aspirations, you know, the value of our contributions, how much we matter, how much we don't matter. And so I think it's really instrumental that we pay a greater attention to the stories. Welcome to the... (laughs) No, 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 I can't do that. Let's try another one. Uh, How about this? (laughs) No, no, that won't work either. Let's try this. get on board with that. Let's roll with it. Welcome to the Begin the Begin podcast. My name is Jeff Hillemeyer, and I'm on a mission to find out what makes people tick. Not just anyone, people who are making a profound impact on the world. I want to dig into their origin story and get to the root of why and how they do what they do. I hope you are as inspired coming out of these conversations as I am. Let's get into it. On this episode, I once again have the privilege of talking with Tawana Harris and Nicola Smith in this second installment of their Gray Matter series. Their focus is to bring different and unique perspectives around race and social justice with a particular focus on the power of storytelling and narrative to create change. I'm so appreciative of their work in this area, and if you haven't, definitely go back and listen to the first episode after this one. Let's get into it. Okay, here we are, episode two of Gray Matter with Tawana Harris and Nicholas Smith. How are you two doing today? Surviving, you yeah. know. Just, just hanging <laughs> in as best as we can. Has there ever been a year that we, that was how we just basically always answered that question? No. <laughs> no, no, definitively the worst year of my life personally and collectively, I think. So agree. hundred you know. <laughs> percent. All right. Well, that's, that's a good way to start off a podcast. Yay. <laughs> well, you know me ever the optimist. So, but, but here we are, we're trying to do something that might help. So um, Nicola, why don't you take a stab at remind, this is episode two. Why don't you sort of tell people what are you and Twana hoping to do with gray matter? Yeah. So this um, podcast really sprung out of the types of discussions that Tawana and I have been having for years around race and um, society in general. And really what we wanted to do is open up the conversation. Um, We want to have the difficult conversations, the uncomfortable conversations we both believe that the only way we're going to move forward as it relates to race and class and religion and all of the other components of society and, and being human. Um, And uh, we really believe that the way to move that forward is by getting comfortable with having uncomfortable conversations. Um, And we both bring a unique perspective to the table 
And so we're hoping that our frankness and our openness encourages other people to have conversations um, that are difficult. And that's our primary goal. Couldn't have said it better myself. Perfect. What a team you guys are. So, um, and I think today, building on our conversation from the first episode, which hopefully if you haven't listened, audience, please go listen to that one. We want to talk a little bit more about storytelling and narrative um, and how it shapes, uh, you know, our current sort of landscape and how we're processing this and dealing with it, um, certainly historically and maybe even going forward. So as you guys think about that idea of storytelling, um, how, how, do, how, how do you see that fitting into today's landscape? You know, I'll say that, um, I would say that it's the most powerful mechanism for really being able to give us some perspective about what has happened in history, what we're dealing with in our current times. And honestly, it has the ability to shape where we go forward, how we move forward. Um, I think that there's a, a phrase, and I probably should have looked this up ahead of time, but it says something about whoever owns the story owns the reality, right? And um, right now we're dealing with a multitude of different stories that are out in our world, right? That really shape our aspirations, you know, the value of our contributions, how much we matter, how much we don't matter. And so I think it's really instrumental that we pay a greater attention to the stories, to the narratives that have really shaped a lot of our perspectives. And when we really drill down and understand the factual history behind a lot of that, we'll see that many of the things that we've learned along the way haven't necessarily been based on truth. Um, and so I'll leave it there just to kind of, you know, kind of open up the conversation. Yeah, so Tuan and I actually talked about this earlier today um, as we were prepping for this podcast. And, you know, being an immigrant, um, when I lived in South Africa, America definitely projected a very specific narrative about what it meant to be American, about what it meant to live in America, about what, and, and it was focused on that idea of freedom and liberty for all. And I actually, I don't think I told, I didn't tell you this, Tawana, but, you know, coming out of apartheid and to the United States, when I first got here, and especially a lot of the adults that I was around, because I was 14 when I moved, or just turned, I turned 14 right after we moved. Um, and I didn't, like the LA riots had happened not too long before that. The first rap music I ever heard, I don't know if I told you this story, but um, you know, the government censored the media in South Africa during apartheid. So we didn't get certain shows or movies. We didn't get bands that were opposed to apartheid. We also didn't really get rap music. And so the first time I ever heard rap music was at a bar mitzvah, bar mitzvah after party. Um, yes, though that's a thing that exists when I was like 12 years old. And someone's cousin had sent them a tape a cassette tape like recorded of NWA. 
And I was like, what the fuck? Like, what is going on in America that Black people there are so pissed off? Like, it's not South Africa. Like, it's not like, you know, from what I know, apartheid doesn't exist there. And I did not... I think a lot of us were kind of shocked by the the anger. And obviously we were listening to a very specific perspective, right? Um, with NWA, but like, it was, it was a very, um, it was very interesting. And it really, it took me a couple of years of being in the United States to truly understand why, you know, people who were theoretically free and you, can't, you guys can't see me, but I'm doing air quotes, um, were still so angry about, you know, what seemed to me and what was perpetuated to be this place of freedom and equality and diversity and everybody has the sh- same shot at the American dream. Um, and so, yeah, you know, storytelling is a really powerful tool. And I think it's one of the things that America is very good at you know, this is a place where Hollywood, you know, has told stories for close to 100 years now. It's, it's much of the literature that we look at and read is, is born in the United States. Um, so yeah, I mean, I feel like Americans are very apt storytellers. This country has been a good storyteller, but it's just that. It's, it's a story. And I just want to um, jump in really a, quick because that's interesting. And it makes me think about, you know, when I was growing up, I heard the same things, right? So I heard that America was the land of the free, home of the brave, you know, all of this liberty and justice and all of those things. But what I didn't know is that I really didn't know what freedom meant, right? I really didn't know what justice meant. I didn't really know those terms until I've gotten older and you start to see the fallacies that come along with the use of those terms. And then what I realized as a, a full fledged adult with adult children now is that it's a constant process of trying to achieve that liberty and that justice. Um, you know, I was on a conversation on a platform yesterday and they kind of talked about what African-Americans are dealing with right now. And it's like how somebody posed a really great question. It was like, at what point do we maintain peace in the midst of everything that's going on? And one of the young ladies responded with the best response possible is that this is a part of the identity that we live. It is the conversion of rage into something that's actionable every single day. You know, when you wake up and you see live executions every single day, it's not like you wake up with joy and then, you know, um, you're able to kind of just leverage that and amplify that. You're actually waking up with a sense of rage because you just don't know what today's gonna deal deal towards your, your reality. You don't know if there's gonna be harm coming towards you as a person, harm coming towards your kids, and when I say harm, I'm not just meaning physical, you know, executions in the street, but I'm also talking the microaggressions that come in every single facet of your space, right? When the woman starts to follow you around the store and it's just like, hey, can I take that to the dressing room for you? And, you know, it's those little microaggressions that remind you every single day of who you are and who other people think that you are. So it's a very 
difficult reality, but I think it's, you know, one of the things that we talked about, you know, on this call was how do we convert that into happiness and, and into joy and into something that's more actionable and more positive and more productive than just living and, and reliving this trauma on a regular basis? Yeah, how, I think it's a good question. How does, how, how do you though, um, as I think about our world today, um, you know, by and large, you're either on one side or the other, you're either hearing, you know, Black Lives Matter and you believe in that and you're, you're hearing the, the, the reality there, or you say all lives matter and you're on that side and you're, you know, and the medias are completely split. And so as you think about, and usually the communities are completely split. Like if I have friends that say all lives matter, I don't know it. I, I, I like to hope that I don't, but I, I don't know that I do because they're not saying in front of me. How do you think about storytelling from that perspective? Like, how do you get to people to tell those stories, to build that em empathy that we talked about in the last episode, if they're not listening in the same places that you're telling the story? I'll jump in really quickly and just say that what people don't understand is the Black Lives Matter movement is really about all lives mattering right? Like at the core of what it really means, it is about all lives mattering. But because the Black lived experience has never been one that has truly mattered, right, to the Black community, that is specifically why they pull out the words Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter. So I think it's important that we start from that context, right, and start that and to utilize that as an overarching frame. Um, it's very difficult and Unfortunately, because of the level of toxicity and trauma that I've been exposed to, I'm at a state to where I can only allow so much negativity in my life. And I just don't feel like I'm responsible for the emotional labor of constantly educating people, right? We all have to do the work, right? And so with that said, you know, my perspective now is much different than it was six months ago. And it's interesting because I was just reading something in one of the trade periodicals. I can't remember if it was Adweek or some other um, publication, but they mentioned that the support for Black Lives Matter has actually waned by 20%. So it started off at 60%. Now it's declined to 40%. And I think that we're starting to see some of that because of the division that has been spewed out by narrative and through storytelling with some of this election oriented, you know, rhetoric, as well as just some of the things that are happening. It's just like, okay, this was really cool for a minute, but we gave you guys all this money and you're still complaining. Right. And so this, this whole notion of it's philanthropy support, diversity and inclusion initiatives have always had this underlying focus around charity. And it's like, listen, we know you guys need money, right? And we gave it to you. So aren't you happy now? And it's like, we're not looking for money. We're looking for equity and equality. And I think that that's the fundamental piece that people just don't understand. We want our lives to be preserved just as everyone else's lives are preserved. Right. We want the same rights to the same opportunities. And I think that as a woman, I can say this both from being an African-American as well as from being a female. We want equitable pay. We want equitable conditions. We want respect. We want all of the same things that everybody else is getting. Well, and for me, again, like I'm I'm I studied anthropology. I'm a history nerd and a sci fi nerd. So 
you'll find me reading both at any given time. Um, but, you know, I, not being born in the United States, I don't have the same, not allegiance, but I'm, I'm, I don't have the same skin in the game in regard to the narrative around this country, right? Um, and to me, it's really interesting because my husband and I actually talked about this the other day that in reality, we hearken back to the founders, right? Everyone's like the founders and the constitution. And it says liberty and justice for all, but it doesn't. It actually says liberty and justice for all white men who own property. It didn't include me as a woman. It didn't include you, Tawana, as a woman, especially not as a woman of color. Um, and so, you know, again, to me, like there's, there's an element of the narrative we tell about what America is that is just fundamentally not true. And you can, you can look at it through the historical perspective and say, well, were there other countries that allowed women to vote? And I honestly, I'm not sure. I can't remember when suffrage came to um, the United Kingdoms versus the United States or when those rights were granted in different countries. But ultimately, just the baseline story that we tell ourselves about America is false, right? Like, it was never meant to be justice and liberty for all if you didn't fall into this very specific and narrow category of rich white dude. And that's part of the problem. And obviously, there are amendments that have added rights for different groups, thank gosh, why am I even saying gosh, like I swear all the time and now all of a sudden I'm being like all prim and proper. Um, but you know, like it, it's, um, uh, to me, that's a part of this is kind of we need, and it goes back to what we talked about last episode, which is the need to acknowledge and fundamentally understand what this country actually is and where we are as a nation and acknowledge that while those may be aspirational things that we have always striven for, they are not things that have ever actually been in place for all of us through the history of the United States. And acknowledging that falsehood, I think is an important part to moving us forward. Um, and so to me, like so much of this comes back to that idea of like, we need to understand the truth of what the United States is and how it's been structured so that we can start to see the systematic issues that are in place um, instead of simply holding up the mythology of what we believe America might be or could be or should be and, and believing that that is where we are now. Um, and so, so I don't know, to me, like there, there's, there's a need for new narratives and there's a need for, there's a need for a narrative that acknowledges all of, of those inequalities throughout history and then legitimately looks at where we are and says, okay, if, if that is truly what we want and that's what we want to be, how do we get there? And I think that the, ultimately that is the question that we're asking in November is what does this country actually want to be?
Does it actually want to be a place of freedom, justice, and liberty for all? Or is that fake? Is that a falsehood? Is that a mask that this country has worn for the last 250 years? And I think we're gonna find out. Very soon. And I think it also opens up the question around, do we really want to return to the normal that we just left? Or is there a possibility of creating a new normal that literally opens up the possibilities for everyone? And that's gonna be what is going to be ultimately voted on in November. I, I hope so. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I do want to, um, Nicola, when we had our podcast, just the two of us, I, I uh, was telling you about how I grew up in Stone Mountain of all places, went to high school in Stone Mountain. And I was taught that the smart answer to why the Civil War was fought was states' rights, that the incorrect answer was slavery. Um, I happen to be reading a book right now called Parting the Waters. Um, it's a thousand page epic. It, uh, Taylor Branch, the author, won a Pulitzer Prize for it. Um, it's essentially the king era of civil rights. And there's a part I wanted to read to you guys that layers into this, you know, who owns the story and sort of the history of all of this. So it's, it's, there's a scene happening in Mississippi, and there's two initiatives going on um, by the civil rights activists. One is the Freedom Rides. And the other is voter registration. Um, and in this particular town in, in Mississippi, um, they're, they're continuously trying to get um, uh, black citizens registered to vote. And of course they go in and they're told either no, some of them are beaten, some of, a couple of them were killed just trying to, to register to vote. Um, and if they don't get attacked, they're asked all these questions that you know, they can't possibly know the answer to. So these students at, the, at this high school, um, about 100 black students um, go and protest one day. And then they try to come back to school and the principal is saying, you have to sign this petition that says you're, you're not going to do that ever again or you can't come back to school. So the kids are like, well, we're not signing them. So the, um, the, uh, the group at SNCC, they create what they call nonviolent high. And so they literally stand up a high school where the adults, many of the adults have degrees in education. They start teaching those students because they can't go to school. So I'm going to read you this passage. And remember, these are black um, leaders. These are black leaders um, teaching these black students. To protect student morale from erosion over time, the SNCC leaders created an emergency school of their own, which they called Nonviolent High. Many of the SNCC teachers possessed qualifications more advanced than the regular teachers, and this fact itself touched off one of the countless subtopics of controversy. In the history class, a young boy rose to ask Charles McDew whether the course would ever cover the war for Southern independence. The war for what, McDew replied? He was puzzled until he realized that this was one of the diehard Confederate terms for the Civil War, and that even the young Negro crusaders in his class had absorbed unconsciously a great deal of the Southern point of view. So these are black children protesting that, you know, the, 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 the citizens in this town can't register to vote, and yet they still think of it as the war of Southern independence because that's what they've been taught. These are, these are black students. The white students, of course, know that and believe that to be true. So you're dealing with, yes, from the founding of this country, you know, part of the, part of the thing that our founding fathers didn't like was that England was going to start restricting our ability to have slaves going to the Western states. 
I mean, that was one of the reasons we fought the war. So it's inherent across, you know, time and, and location and everything. And so I guess, you know, going back to the storytelling, like you think about this conversation that you all have just had and that we'll continue to have. Um, how do we, because I would imagine you would want people to hear it that aren't like fully on board yet, right? People who, that there's a chance to, <laughs> to at least start to expand their horizons. Um, how do we do that? And, you know, Tawana, to your point, is it our, your responsibility? Is that part of it? Um, Cause again, clearly you guys aren't interested in that, j this just to, you know, talk to other people who already believe. So, so where do you go from here on, on storytelling to affect change? I think we have well, to tell different stories. <laughs> um, I think that's at the core of what's happening. I think, you know, I don't ever want to say the days of just kind of having conversations and discussions are over because I think we're all turning internally to our families, to our close friends to have those conversations, right? Um, I don't know how many people have struggled to continue to have those conversations on a wider level just because it's it, it sucks up so much of your energy and your time to just have those conversations, those conversations. It really um, constrains the growth of the relationship sometimes. And depending upon where it's at, it actually can remove you from opportunity. So there's real consequences sometimes to just having these conversations that try to reach some sort of common core. Um, but I do believe that what's happening right now, um, whether it's for good or for bad, is I think we're starting to shift. We're starting to see a shift. And that shift is, is literally people of color in particular are getting to the point to where they're not believing what corporate brands, what larger entities are saying about diversity and inclusion. They feel like the billions of dollars that have been committed to that thus far have not made you know, have, have made like literally marginal, marginal and not even easily measurable movements in that effort. And so why keep pushing something that obviously is not working? And so what you're starting to hear more is about, we have to take care of ourselves. And so you're, you're going to start to see really um, amplified efforts around entrepreneurship, um, you're going to start to see more of that when it comes to film and television. You're going to start seeing like different platforms and different technologies take place when it comes to, you know, music and every other form of storytelling. Right now, one of our biggest storytelling elements right now is you have athletes on the front lines of activism. It's never happened before. Like it is now, right? It's happened before, but never to the level that it is now. And, um, I'm really inspired by what we're seeing because I do believe that we may be missing some generations that are so um, conditioned to this type of thinking, but who is resonating. And I feel like it, it gives me the, the inspiration to keep pushing forward are this amazing Gen Z, right? So they're redefining what reality looks like. Does that impact people like you and I? Um, in terms of our generation, probably not as much. Um, and we just gotta kind of push through. 
but I'm there a hundred percent when it comes to supporting my kids and other young people that are just like, but why does it have to be that way? And I think that's the best question I've ever gotten is, but why, <laughs> but why? And, and they teach you this when it comes to innovation, when you're launching a new mm -hmm. idea, you just keep asking people, but why, but why? And I think we have to adapt some of that when it comes to social issues that really move our country forward. And I plus one to all of that, you know, I, I also think it comes down to as a white person, A, I think we should be the ones holding other white people accountable. We have more leeway to do so. We're less likely to face negative consequences for doing so. I think, I mean, to be completely blunt, I think all of us need to grow some balls and like saying no and standing up and talking out when we see people being treated badly um, for whatever reason it may be. But I, I feel like we have that responsibility. Um, and I also think that starting to tell different kinds of stories um, you know, I think even, even as we look at it from a female perspective, you know, majority of storytellers throughout history have been male. Um, we, we have a very narrow understanding of history and women's experiences. And one of the things I want to get to is not as a society using white and male as the default, you know, so we, we don't call them white historic universities but we do have, you know, black historic universities. The reason we call them out is because the default is white. And I think both our changes in population in this country and this kind of new understanding requires not just new stories, but new language. And I think we need to start being really conscious of that. Um, you know, like, why is it like the best women, woman scientist, whereas the other one is just like the best male scientist, or is the, just the best scientist, right? It's only called out because women or people of color or black people are other. And like, to me, that's when we'll know that we're starting to reach some level of n not just performative equity, but actual equity. Um, is, is when white isn't the default. I mean, in this country, and, and Jeff, I definitely want you to chime back in, but in this country, we have to understand that we have established exclusion as a norm, right? And othering as a norm. And, you know, as I've been challenged with just trying to take all the negativity that I deal with on our on a daily basis and say, how do I convert this into some positive energy? And now I have this whole other saying that I kind of coach myself on all the time is exclusion is my inspirational superpower. I've always been motivated by proving people wrong, right? Mm -hmm. But now it's a, 
it's a little bit of a different nuance. And so my focus right now is I could give two shits about what other people think about me, right? Like I'm at that age to where I just don't care. You know, either you like me or you don't. Like I'm as authentic as it gets an open book, right? But what I teach my kids is that you have to show everybody behind you what it feels like to be included. You got to bust down that door and you don't ask permission. You don't ask to come in. You just walk in and say, this is what I'm here for. This is the value that I bring. Either they take it or they don't. And if they don't, you just move on. And it's just that cut and dry. I think our generation has tried to force fitting in. And so with that comes so much erasure of yourself, so much of the elimination of your authenticity that you truly would bring to the table. So I think it's, it's, it's so funny when people say, oh, you should bring your true self into life every day. You should bring your true self to work every day. I was like, there is no job that I've ever been at that's really wanted my true self to come to work out on a daily basis, right? They want what they think is my true self, but there is a mask that I sit in my car prior to COVID and put on every single day when I work into a work environment. And that can't happen because the authenticity is what is really promotion, the promoting the brands that give us our global narratives around who we are as a country. Like if we think about the most excluded, the most undervalued, the most uneducated, undermined individuals in this world have bust through the barriers and they're now top hip hop artists that have shaped our whole entire country's culture. But yet and still every single day, they're undermined, underappreciated, undervalued, under, under and under, right? In every other industry, it's about, conform it's, it's about conforming to a norm. And that's not, that's not authentic. It's not innate to who you are. And so I think we have to get to the point to where we accept people for who they are. We value their contributions based upon their actual worth in our society. And we continue to move forward. But that's got to be a new, it's got to be a new reality that has to be shaped. And, and, un and fortunately, for those of us that are on the front lines of storytelling and narrative shaping, I'm super excited about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, th I think we've got two, two big problems that I see in terms of what you both just spoke about. The first is that powerful people are, are uh, in many cases gonna fight tooth and nail to keep that power and keep things in place the way that works for them, right? So we're dealing with an, a generation that I hope is aging out over time, but you know, it's, hard to, it's hard to get them out. I mean, that's, it, you know, as you said, but why, but why? I think a lot of times that answer ends in because people who have power don't want to give that power up. And this is an easy way for them to, you know, men, white, these are easy ways for them to go, well, now we're in a smaller select group and we're the powerful. I, I would love for those people to change. What I really would like is the people who are simply misinformed, haven't spent the time, like just to hear what you talked about, Tawana, about, you know, putting on your mask before you went in and having to be someone that you're not. That was one of the stories that I heard when I went through Leadership Atlanta in 2012, sitting next to my black classmates talking about that. And I, it had never occurred to me. It never occurred to me. And that was, you know, one of just dozens and dozens of stories. And so I was able to hear that and then seek to learn more and hopefully continue to change. It's those people that I would love for us to get to because I think there's hope there. Um, and 
and again, I just, I, I go back to, um, did you, yep, you guys said it, we can tell different stories. Um, but how do we get like what you just said out more? How do we get the reality of what's happening to people who just aren't seeing it? Maybe, maybe because they're not trying, but they're not seeing it. And gosh, there's change that could happen there. Those are the people I want to get to. And that's what I had hoped was happening with the last six months where we're all stuck in COVID. And, you know, I was disheartened to hear the, the stat you shared about, you know, the support that Black Lives Matter is, is dropping because that's what I, I was worried would happen. People are outraged and aghast. And now, yeah, it's sort of like going back to life a little bit more. And so, I don't know, there's, there's got to be a way to start to affect that middle group so that they start to understand what's happening in this country. Because I believe there's so many people that if they heard that, they would want to work toward changing it. You know, I, I will say this. I've seen, I've been really um, somewhat inspired um, with some of the memes that I've seen coming out during COVID. And to be honest, we're still talking Gen Z and maybe in the millennial community, right? To where they've basically shown in a very comedic and humorous way. Um, I, I forget the name of the meme, but I think it's like the the... It's, it's like a parody on all the bad questions that get asked to black people and then it gets turned around to white people, right? And so um, I wish I could really think of it from the top of my head, but I just can't right now. Um, but those are little ways of just understanding how painful it is. Like, is that really your hair? Can I touch it? You know, like those types of things. And it was like literally flipping that on its head to where I think through a comedic and humorous way, it builds a sense of understanding to where you're like, that is actually really insulting for me to ask that question. Like there's no reason for me to know that answer or to ask those questions. Like that's really not cool, right? And so I think that what they're doing in their generation, which is again, a lot of times just circulating amongst their communities, they're actually opening up new ways of creating dialogue, new ways of creating understanding. Um, it, I, I don't know how we do that in our generation. You know, there's so many thought leaders in this space. And so I don't want to ne necessarily juxtapose ourselves to be those thought leaders, you know, around like real substantive change. Now what I can speak and what I know by the back of my hand is storytelling through through marketing, through branding, through all of those things. And I mean, it goes down, it's, it's from the movies that we watch to television shows, the advertising that gets promoted around brands. It's everything now. It's social media and how they position different people. Um, and so we have to literally hold all of those entities accountable for really bringing authenticity to the table. And authenticity oftentimes doesn't, can't be a byproduct of an environment that doesn't, that lacks representation. And so I think that that is where we really need to start to shift. And I'm excited to see, because I think that we're going to start to see those things. And if we don't see them in the traditional sense, we'll start to see them in newer, more innovative models. I mean, one of the things that I think, you know, we are consumers and we have power. And I just think about the comments from, um, I think the president of the CEO of Wells Fargo this week, right? And what a fucking cop out that is and how much bullshit that is. 
and how it just, like, I think as consumers, we should demand that those people are pushed out of the brands that we use and the brands that we support and that we buy from is if, if it's too hard for you to find qualified diverse candidates, then it's going to be too hard for me to buy your fucking product until that dude is no longer in power. And not just that, but you know what? Black talent that's working there should leave. And I'm, I'm sure that Bank of America or somewhere else will happily hire you because they, if nothing else, want to avoid the same debacle that Wells Fargo is in, right? So to me, it's about like, as consumers, we need to get smarter. And then I think as parts of the community, for those of us who have the privilege of being able to switch jobs or being able to choose which company we go and work for, which not everyone's in that position, um, we should hold companies accountable from a talent perspective. You want my mind, my brain, my experience working for your brand? Well, then I'm going to hold leadership accountable for, you know, not being racist. Um, I'm going to hold them accountable for some of the things that I value as a, an individual. And I, I think it just needs to be that collective. And those are kind of the stories I want us to tell, right? Is not just these stories of what we hope to be, but the stories of like small change on the ground, you know, of being the person who stands up in the restaurant and says, you can't, you can't say that in here. You can think that, that's your, but you need to get out. And other people need to stand up and also say, not acceptable, get out, you know? And so those are the stories I want to see told is like the everyday small things of standing up, of being a good person, of fighting for your neighbor, of fighting for, for you know, the, the less privileged and, and the people who are marginalized. And it doesn't have to be... It, you you don't have to change the world with a single action, but you do need to take that first step, you know? And the, so those are the stories I want to see us telling. Um, and I want to move away from the mythology of like what America purports that it is. And I think there's an opportunity to redefine the narrative around the history of America as well as the future of where this country is going. But it's not gonna be by, you know, heralding the past and pretending it's something it's not. And I would say I've been really inspired. I met a young lady who's Irish and she is a Gen Zer. Um, can y'all tell I'm a fan? And she talked about how she's a social media influencer, really. She has, I want to say, like 8 million followers. And she talked about how she recently signed a contract with a brand. And as a part of working for this agency, she had to make a pledge. And there were like eight options of how she was committing personally to anti-racism, you know, uh, philosophy, right? And so um, a couple of them were listed out, but they were like, you know, um, these are like five acknowledgements. None of our retirement programs support 
private prison industrial complex, right? So, and, and, I, and I'm totally paraphrasing, but there was probably two or three pages of the document that she had to read through, under, sign that she understood the company's commitment to that. And then she had to physically pledge one of the 10 ways that she was going to commit to doing certain things. And I thought that that was great, you know? And so one of the things that we kind of talked about on a side note is just aggregating. What is that? What is happening around the nation? Like that's a really good practice. And I'm sure that's not the only company that's doing that, but what if more companies even knew that they were taking, that's a step, that's an actionable step so that when you actually, you know, do something that is counter to one of those 10 pledges, you understand where the company stands and you understand when they ask you to leave because you did not comply with a value that was integral to the company's culture and DNA. And so I think that that's also another way, you know, that's not necessarily the storytelling component, but I'd love to be able to tell stories around the companies that are really doing some creative things that really have a long-term measurable impact around some of these issues as opposed to the performative notions of either writing a check or making a statement. I love that as a jumping off point, potentially for our next conversation around corporations, business, storytelling, that there's, there's something there. I mean, I'm a big proponent of business as a force for good, because I think in both of your examples, Nicola and yours, a bad example, Wells Fargo and what, and what happened there. And then Twana and yours, a good example. And so, but these are also stories, stories that people are hearing and they're telling. And so there's an element there that obviously we have experience in storytelling with brands. So, so maybe that's a place to jump off, jump off at next time. Um, I, we could talk for hours. Like I, I hate to stop us, but there's a limit to our podcasting. We want to get, get these out. So um, any, any parting words as we look at a month ahead of us of debates uh, and votes and hopefully changes? I would just say get comfortable being uncomfortable, right? So it's going to be a month of hard conversations. But if I had any words of encouragement, it is just take the time to do more listening than talking. And I think at that point, take a moment to just really digest what someone else has said. Feel free to ask why and why and why again, and try to really understand their perspectives. And I think that that will if it does nothing else, it provides more understanding and more empathy, regardless of if you agree with it or not. I think it's really important that we just understand that everybody's not had the same experiences. Everybody's not had the same access nor the same opportunity in this country. And I think hopefully for people that have a conscience that really do care about people, I think it will open a door to some greater understanding um, that could lead to different actions. And I will just say, question the stories you've been told, mm. uh, dig into them, see if they need rewriting, both for yourself and for your community, and uh, go and vote early, in person if possible, like now. Georgia voting started today, so if you're in Georgia, go vote. That's it. But one more thing and download the 1619 project. 
Mm. It is amazing. And I don't know if you guys have heard, but basically Trump has said that um, any schools that teach it, he's actually going to remove their federal funding. So I think it's really important that we circulate that particular project that does outline a number of truths about our country's history. And it will provide more context around the history behind this country, what has been done, what continues to be done, and how we can all move forward in a more equitable manner. That's an amazing example of rewriting narrative based on fact and information and different perspectives. And if you are an educator or if you're working in education administration, um, find a way to teach it in your schools. So federal funding be damned. (laughs) <laughs> need to say that I didn't work in administration. So. <laughs> well, I, uh, I appreciate you both so much. Those are great words uh, at the end. We'll put links in the show notes and I uh, can't wait for our next conversation. Thanks for letting me be a fly on the wall in these. Hey, we, we appreciate yeah, thank you. What a joy. Thank you. Yeah. See thank you next you time. So much. Okay. Bye. Bye. Wow, you made it to the end of the podcast. I didn't think people did that anymore. Well, since I still have you, I'd love for you to do two things. First, subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you're listening on. That way you'll be alerted as soon as I post my next one. And second, I'd love for you to subscribe to my email newsletter. I send out an email every week or two, and it's really where I share my more personal thoughts and ideas. Plus, I give stuff away sometimes. You can find the sign up at my blog, jeffhillemeyer.com. And I really do appreciate you listening.